My name is Sean, and I help coordinate the community groups here at church, and uh, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. The title of this message is Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. God's righteous judgment is inescapable, but His mercy abounds to all. This is, we're going to consider the seventh parable of Jesus. Uh, we've been walking with Jesus as he's been describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. And for his audience, I think they, they were thinking of something physical like geography, a location. But Jesus was talking about spiritual, a spiritual kingdom, having a, a relationship with King Jesus. And Jesus has revealed the nature of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom in our lives and community. Now, if you were here last week, we discovered that the kingdom of heaven is like finding a treasure or seeking a pearl. That Jesus is that pearl of greatest value, right? And he is so worth it. This morning, we have a large section of scripture we're going to consider, Matthew 13, 47 through 14, 13. I have to confess, it's a heavy message. It's a heavy message. We're going to be talking about judgment. So if you'd be so kind to buckle yourselves in tight as we consider God's word this morning. We're going to come to the climax of these parables and it gives us here a warning, a fearful warning that in the end there will be an eternal separation of the redeemed from the condemned. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why do evil people prosper? Why is it like the evil, the wicked seem to get over, right? Well, this is both good news and bad news. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of judgment when God will call us to account, right? Maybe it's not according to our timetable. We would love judgment to come instantaneously, right? But God is patient, and this patience really speaks of salvation, the reason he didn't come yesterday is because today there are people that are going to commit their lives to Christ. That's the patience and goodness of God. Now when you think of Jesus, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's his love or mercy, his patience, his long-suffering. And believe me, Jesus is all that. In fact, it's almost impossible to over-exaggerate the mercy and love of Christ. But also the Bible indicates that God is holy, and His holiness is actually more emphasized even than His love. And because God is a holy God of love, He must judge sin. And that is why Jesus died on the cross. That is why He was willing to pay our price there at Calvary. In Exodus 34-7, it says that He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He cannot overlook sin. So the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven, resembles or corresponds to a future day of separation, of judgment. And here in our text before us this morning, judgment is coming against three categories of people. Against the non-authentic, the non-believers, and the non-repentant. So the scripture that we have before us this morning is found in Matthew 13. If you'd be so kind to open up your hearts as we open 
up God's Word this morning, Matthew 13, starting in verse 47, and I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out his treasure things new and old. And this is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word this morning that never returns to you void, but always accomplishes the purpose for which you've sent it. And Lord, we confess this is a heavy word. This is a word about judgment, about separation, about uh, collecting the good and throwing away the bad. And so God, we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate us so we would understand what your message is for us this morning. And God, we thank you even in this uh, context of judgment, we see so clearly your mercy. Lord, just uh, uh, release your mercy upon your people today, God. We receive it. And we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So judgment, we're going to have these three groups of people. Judgment is coming against, number one, those who are bad, the bad fish. And we're going to define terms, of course. But let's talk about this dragnet. And we're talking about dragnet. We're not t- thinking about that TV show with Joe Friday and Bill Gannon, right? This is a, a real net, a humongous net, a very large net that covered one half mile of area. Half of the net would be attached to the seashore and the other end would be connected to the boat and the boat would go out to the sea, right? And form, begin to move in a circle, forming a cone and it would sweep all the life in front of it into this massive net. This net was like a a vertical wall capturing everything, every form of life. The dragnet, the parable of the dragnet, right? What's the takeaway? Well, it's talking about judgment, right? It's all-inclusive and non-discriminatory because of its immense size. Everything is captured. And number two, there will be a permanent separation. A permanent separation, meaning no one can escape this net. The good fish will be placed into containers and the bad thrown away. So we need to they'll find some terms here. Who's the good fish? Who's the bad fish? And how can we know? Maybe you're thinking, well, gosh, I'm not so bad like my neighbor, so he must be the bad fish and I must be the good fish, right? We compare ourselves to others. Well, God has a different uh, uh, measuring stick, right? This word good in the original means that which is authentic or genuine. That which is authentic or genuine. So the bad would be the opposite, non-authentic and non-genuine. In other words, that which is false, that which is fake, okay? 
So what constitutes good in God's eyes? Well, we know it's not our performance. Our performance doesn't make us good or bad in his sight. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is God's perspective. When he looks at the mass of humanity, right, all the individuals inside this dragnet, he said there's no one good. Not even one. You remember the episode when the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded to him, Why do you call me good? Only one is good. No one is good except God alone. So in light of his holiness, which demands judgment, God has extended us his mercy. This is his character. Just as God is holy, is also God is merciful. And he has provided us a way of escape. I'd like to call a remedy. I'd like to refer to it as a merciful remedy. So what is the merciful remedy to this judgment of separation between the good and the bad? Well, it's to be authenticated. It's to be authenticated. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Behold, take a look at something tangible and visible, right? Something palpable. Be authenticated. In Ephesians 1.13, it says, When you believed, you were marked in Him, in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So that seal of authenticity, or being authenticated, is through means of God the Holy Spirit. It's God the Holy Spirit that seals us, that marks us, that really declares that we're genuine, that we're authentic, that we have His Seal. So it's not so much what we do or don't do. It's the fact that God the Holy Spirit has sealed us. Now I know when we talk about judgment, it's not a popular term. This isn't a feel-good message in that sense, right? But one thing that should, we should find great solace is that here it's not the job description of the church to judge or to separate. Did you see that? It's not the job description of the church to judge or separate. It's God's job. In fact, he dispatches his angels, his holy angels, to do this. It says in the scripture that it's going to be the angels that take away, that, that place the good fish into the containers and the bad fish are thrown away. So why are we here in church if it's not for judgment and separation? Well, this is a mash unit. We're in a hospital. We're broken people. We're jacked up. We desperately need a physician. We need a doctor. That's why we're here. God has begun that work of healing in each of our lives. Blessed be his name. And hopefully God has begun that work of redemption and healing and restoration in our lives. 
Now, after he shares this, this parable, the seventh parable, right, to the disciples, he asks them the question, have you understood these things? And they replied, yes. Did they really understand it? I doubt it. I don't confess that I completely understand it either. And we've got hindsight, right, 2,000 years after the fact. I think for the Jewish people, it's like, oh, yeah, the good fish are the Jews and the bad fish are the non-Jews, right? Makes sense, right? No, not so. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. Again, it's not this geographical, this space, this land, this area where he's going to build and create a kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom within our hearts. And then Jesus says this very interesting comment in verse 52 of Matthew 13. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out his treasure, things new and old. What does this mean? It's kind of cryptic. Well, a scribe would be a, a, a Jewish person, right? Would be a scholar, someone very studied in Judaism. And it talks about the scribe becoming a, a disciple of the kingdom, right? Or becoming a follower of of Jesus and out of his treasure he brings good the excuse me the old things and the new things and so i think the idea is as a person studying in the word of god even as a jewish scholar as they study carefully the old testament they see jesus as they study about the laws they study about the tabernacles they study about the land they study about moses they study about abraham they study about egypt they see jesus right So it's often been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So we see Jesus in the Old Testament. So out of this treasure, this scribe, this disciple of the kingdom, right, brings out things old and things that are new. I think about when uh, Philip the evangelist was sent to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that in Acts chapter 8. And this eunuch happened to be studying out of Isaiah the prophet. And he asked Philip, who's the author talking about, himself or someone else? And the Bible says that Philip, starting with this scripture, preached to him Jesus. And I think that's what this scripture is talking about. The ability to see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. To clearly see that Jesus is the Messiah. It's no one else. He's the fulfilled one, right? So judgment will come against all those who are false or fake. Disciples said they understood this parable. I would ask the question to each one of us this morning. Do we understand it? Do we understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that if we're disciples of the kingdom, that there will be a change in our life, a transformation? You know, if after 10 years you have not seen any tangible change in your life, maybe the reason is you have never been authenticated. Maybe you have never experienced a new life, a recreation. And I understand this is a mass unit and we're in the process, but God is faithful, right? And we have His Holy Spirit inside of us. And He will do that change. He will do that transformation. Well, the good news is, today you can. Today you can be authenticated. You can believe. 
You can be authenticated by his spirit. And it's very simple. Just say, Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, come in my life. Holy Spirit, transform me. Change me. Just as 2 Corinthians tells us, right? The old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. That's the first group, the non-authentic. Number two, non-believers. Judgment is coming against all non-believers. Starting in verse 53 of Matthew 13, God's word says this. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and and in his own household. Verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So after sharing about the seven parables, Jesus walked the 20 miles from Capernaum to Nazareth to his hometown, right? Nazareth was known as a very narrow, prejudiced, cliquish town. And Jesus finds himself in this second year of ministry. He had begun his ministry there in Nazareth. And he comes back a year later, fearlessly and boldly, with great courage and love. Why was it fearlessly and boldly? Because the first time he showed up to Nazareth preaching about the kingdom of heaven, they tried to kill him. His fellow countrymen tried to kill him. Now think about it. Jesus uh, was raised up in the town of Nazareth. He lived a perfect life, a perfect childhood, the son of a carpenter. Think about that. A perfect life. His mother never had to tell him, Jesus, make your bed. Or finish your lima beans. Or throw out the trash. Jesus always did it perfectly. What a dream for those of us who are parents, no? (laughs) My kids are awesome. They're perfect. So, Um, Yeah, Jesus led a perfect life and says that he was a carpenter. Think about that. A carpenter. What's the old adage for all carpenters? Measure twice... Cut once. Measure twice, cut once. Well, Jesus measured once and cut once. He was always on the money. Perfect cuts. And when Jesus would do a room addition there in Nazareth, he always gave a righteous bid. He didn't try to gouge anyone. He did that which was holy and righteous, right? What a dream of a carpenter. So the problem of Nazareth was not a lack of evidence. It was rather they loved their sin. They had a love for evil, and they didn't want Christ at all. They wanted a different Messiah. They didn't value Jesus as the pearl of greatest value. The first time, as we said, Jesus preached in Nazareth, he shows up, and this was after his baptism and temptation. He shows up in the synagogue, just like he does here in Matthew 13, and teaches the Word of God. He reads the Word of God and then gives a message. And it says in Nazareth, the first time everyone was praising him. Where did this man get these words, the eloquence that he had? And he, 
He, he stands up, he reads Isaiah chapter 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has brought me here to, bring, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, right? To bring sight to, to the blind, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then Jesus close, closes the scroll and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled before your very eyes. And then he begins to talk to them about how prophet is without honor in their own home. And that probably the toughest, uh, the toughest ground that we all face as Christians is our own home, our own family sometimes. And he begins to talk about how God in his mercy has raised him up to be Messiah. And he said, you know, you might think of that proverb, physician, heal thyself. Because Jesus knew that the, the, the Nazarenes, his fellow countrymen, were looking for a different type of Messiah. They were basically saying, listen, if you're the Messiah, do some great miracle. Impress us with your ability and your powers. And that's why it says in our text here that Jesus could not do many miracles there. Or he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. The unbelief of the Nazarenes was a hindrance to the work of God in their lives. And it's the same with us. Unbelief impedes the work of God in our lives. God's a gentleman. Christ is a gentleman. He won't force His will on us. He invites us to cooperate with His Holy Spirit. And because of unbelief, we can resist the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Please don't do that. I sense even now the Holy Spirit is working in your lives. is working in our hearts. And he's preparing soil that would be fertile to receive his word. Don't resist because of unbelief. The Nazarenes did not believe that Jesus is all that the Bible claims that he is. And it's not enough to believe that Jesus was a great rabbi or a great example or orator or even inspiration. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the prophet of peace, right? So unbelief is the refusal to believe the facts. As the old adage says, denying the truth doesn't change the facts. Denying the truth doesn't change the facts. So what is the merciful remedy for unbelief? Well, of course, it's to believe, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. There in Acts 16. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, in, in Greek thought, to believe is much more than just an intellectual assent. It's really to commit yourself. Commit yourself. Commit your trust into another. It's to commit your life to Christ. Now, in high school, I called upon the name of Jesus. I put my trust in him. I believed I became a Christian between my junior and senior year of high school. That was a good um, 10, 12 years ago, right? (laughs) hey oh. (laughs) I was invited to a a church service. It was like a little gathering in uh, North Beach there in uh, San Clemente. Those of you that might know where the municipal pool is. And upstairs, they call it the upper room there. And they had a church gathering, and I was invited, and I went, and it was packed, I remember. It was, in fact, it was so packed, there wasn't even room to go inside. So I viewed or experienced the, this Bible study right there outside the door, and 
The pastor gets up and he says, we're going to do something we've never done before here at church. We're going to celebrate communion, right? With the cracker and the juice. But I want you to share communion with someone you don't know. Something I've never done before. So here I am, right? Outside the, the, the actual room, right outside in the door there. One of the deacons comes up to me and says, um, are you a Christian? I said, yes. And he gives me the, the, the bread and he gives me the, the juice. Well, it actually was a common cup. And they, this particular church used real wine. So I have a sip of wine. I go, this is pretty cool. And then afterwards, another person comes up and they said, have you been served? I said, no. They said, are you a Christian? I said, oh, yeah, since birth. So he gave me uh, another piece of bread, another sip of the cup. This is, love this. That was very spiritual. So I, I witnessed or experienced this Bible study the whole time outside there by the door. I didn't give my life to Christ or anything. But after the service, I saw my best friend's older sister. And I knew she was kind of out there. She had the flowers in her hair and stuff. She would talk about Jesus. And this was at the tail end of the Jesus movement. And so we went. She took me out there, the railroad tracks there in front of North Beach. And she begins to share her testimony to me. She goes, would you like to know God? I go, sure, I'd love to know God. Well, just talk to him. She didn't ask me to bow my head or close my eyes or repeat a prayer or sign up somewhere or fill out a form. Just talk to God with my eyes open. So I said, okay, God, if, you know, if you're there, if you're, you exist, come, you know, reveal yourself. And boom, the power of the Holy Spirit just fell. It was the most extraordinary thing. We just sensed the joy of the Lord and just the, the, the cleansing, the healing, the forgiveness right then and there. And it was that simple. I didn't do anything else. Just said, God, if you're there, if you exist, reveal yourself. And he did. And he will even this morning. Maybe someone here this morning has yet to say, God, I believe in you. God, reveal yourself to me. I'm not going to ask you to bow your head. I'm not going to ask you to repeat a prayer to close your eyes, to sign some form. You could do it right now in the privacy of your will, the privacy of your heart. You can say, yeah, I believe. I believe you are the Messiah. You are, you are the good shepherd. You can do that right now. And by the way, if you have, if you did that just now, be sure to tell someone before you leave today. Point number three, uh, how are we doing on time? Okay, the elder of uh, oversight has given me to 1059. I think we're good. Okay, uh, we're good. Point number three. The judgment of God is covered against the non-repentant. The non-repentant. Now we're in chapter 14 of Matthew. Matthew 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers or at work in him. For when Herod had, had, had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him into death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Jesus, uh, excuse me, but when Herod's birthday came, 
The daughter of, of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been propped up by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Here we have a picture of a man, because of fear, who forfeited the kingdom of God and forfeited his relationship with Christ. The Bible says that the fear of man brings a trap. It's a snare. And Herod was definitely an example of stony ground, hard ground, right? Now this Herod is actually Herod the Tetrarch, also known as Herod Antipas. And it was his father, Herod the Great, when he, the Magi came in, remember, and said, we are looking for the king of the Jews. And it says that Herod tr- was greatly troubled and trembled, right? And he ordered that all Jewish boys, two years and younger, be put to death. Talk about dysfunction. Now here we got Herod Antipas, his son. He divorces his wife and marries Herodias, who was in fact his sister-in-law. But his sister-in-law Herodias was in fact the daughter of his brother, making her Herod's niece. And John the Baptist called out Herod for this incestuous relationship. You got to love John the Baptist. He didn't show up with this uh, touchy-feely kind of message. I don't think he got his material from Dale Carnegie, you know, how to win friends, influence people, right? He came in with a machete. The axe is at the root. You brood of vipers, who warned you of the judgment to come, right? And he had the moxie to call out the king. Now notice, Herod Antipas wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a proselyte to Judaism. He was a pagan. He was committed to imperial Worship. He worships Caesar. But John, the man of God, the forerunner of Christ, preached the word of God even to the king. And tells us in Mark 6.20 that because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when he heard John, it says he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. When he heard John the Baptist in prison, Herod was perplexed. But he enjoyed to listen to him. And this word perplexed, the idea is unable to transfer, unable to make the crossover, unable really to repent. Herod saw himself in a situation of no way out. His wife, Herodias, wanted to be queen. And he couldn't listen. He couldn't forsake this relationship, even though it was incestuous. He, He felt he couldn't anyway. And he refused to repent, even though he liked to listen. And there may be someone here this morning that likes to listen to the Word of God that comes to church every Sunday, and you've been coming year after year after year. But maybe you feel like, like Herod, that there's no way out. You really can't repent. You really can't forsake your sin. That's a dangerous place to be in, right? To listen to the Word of God, but not acting upon it. Maybe you are comfortable or familiar with the Word of God, 
But please, don't be lulled into apathy or into spiritual sleep. Don't be deceived. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the church, there are people that are asleep, spiritually speaking. And hearing the word of God, what it does, it hardens us if we don't act upon it. If we don't act upon God's word, it hardens us. And we're to be risen or rise ourselves from the dead and Christ will shine. The promise, the blessing, the mercy, the love, the, the, the patience of God will be shown on us. Now, this didn't end well for Herod. He had John the Baptist put to death because he feared man, right? He made an oath that he was so delighted with his daughter, which is anathema in that culture, but his daughter dancing to basically this group of, of men, right? He has John the uh, Baptist put to death. And he missed out. He refused to repent. And so what is the remedy for non-repentance? And of course, it's repent. In Acts 3.19, it says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. To repent, it's, let's define it as, as this. The awareness that one needs to make a decision to change the direction of their life. It's the awareness. And that comes through the preaching of the, of the Word of God. So I commend all of us for being here this morning in that sense that we are becoming aware of what the will of God is through the teaching of His Word. But notice here, it's the awareness that one needs to make a decision to change the direction of their life. Now, even that change, we can't do it ourselves. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's Holy Spirit that woos us and invites us to make that decision. But repentance is important. It's the fruit. It's the fruit that God is is indeed working in our lives. In Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, He who steals must steal no longer. But rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. He who steals, if you're a thief, Paul is saying, stop it. Employ your hands to something edifying for the mutual edification of another for the community. And sometimes we think repentance is this heavy thing. It's really just a decision. I'm aware that it's not appropriate. I love God. I want to serve Him. Therefore, I'm going to stop doing it by His grace and by His mercy. And you know when you repent, when you and I repent, Jesus will shine His Spirit, will shine His grace and mercy upon us. And as we close this morning, when Jesus heard of John's death, it says that He withdrew. This is a heavy message. The judgment of God is a real thing. It's inescapable. Remember the dragnet. No one can escape. It's this vertical wall that catches everything, every form of life. But you don't have to be, go through the judgment, the white throne judgment of Christ. Jesus paid the penalty. He was judged and condemned for you and I. So we can respond to his mercy. We can believe and repent and ask God to forgive us of our sins. You know, Jesus takes no delight in judgment. That's why our title, the title of this message is Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. When we realize the extraordinary price that Jesus paid on the cross of Calvary, we receive his mercy, his grace, and we're so 
grateful. And that produces that change, that transformation in our lives. Let me leave you with this. In 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but the Lord is patient toward you and toward me, not wishing for any of us to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's His desire. Jesus doesn't want anyone to go through judgment. He wants people to respond because of His grace and His mercy through repentance. And that's a glorious thing to realize that His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new right now. As you listen to His Word, His Holy Spirit is preparing your heart to say, yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd like to believe. I'd like to repent. And we're going to have a lot of opportunity to do that this morning as we begin our second set of worship. And we have a couple, a few questions here, meditative questions, if we could put that on the screen. A couple rhetorical questions that I'd like you to contemplate and think about in your own heart. Number one, have I been authenticated by a spirit? Have I experienced a recreation in my life? Is there an area of unbelief in my heart? Is there something I need to repent of? This morning we have the carpets, we have communion. We invite you to come forward. And if God is speaking to you, and I believe he is, Take that opportunity, that invitation. He stands at the door and knocks. If you would open the door of your heart, he's going to come in and sup with you and have communion with you. We're also going to have the prayer team on my left and right. Maybe there's something you need to confess. Yeah, I need to repent of this. I'm involved in this relationship or I'm a thief or I'm doing something that doesn't please God. What a great opportunity to be able to confess that and give that weight, that burden to Christ. We have a lot of people who would love to pray with you. So let's all stand and let's close in prayer this morning. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your word. We're just so grateful, Holy Spirit, that even now you're hovering and you're moving into hearts, God. It's not because the words that I've crafted, it's the Holy Spirit that's using the, the frailty of my words, Lord, to touch lives. God, we thank you so much, Jesus, that judgment is a reality. You are holy. You cannot overlook sin. You cannot pass over sin. But even in, the, in that context of judgment, you offer us grace and mercy and loving kindness. And that your patience, the fact that you did not judge the world already, it's because of your patience. Not, you don't desire anyone to perish but all to come to repentance. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would touch and draw in hearts and people would respond to you and say, yes, I want Christ. I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Lord, would you do that work this morning? We pray it all now in Jesus' name. Amen.